Christmas confection season. Yes, there really is a season for that. It's coming. Now, I've covered Christmas cookies. This show is about fudge and brittle and truffles. Braden Cadinelli returns to talk candy and some handy tips. Time, temperature, and patience are the three key elements necessary for candy making, and a good thermometer and a scale. Now, it's time to get cooking and make some goodies. The Eating Liberty Podcast, episode 213, Food and Freedom, once a week for life. Hello, folks. Braden Canelli returns. On his last visit, we talked nearly all things chocolate. This time, we discussed truffles, but also the difference between classic fudge and that marshmallow fluff kind, some tips to make peanut brittle and to make marshmallows too. Hello, Brayden. Thank you for joining me again, but the first time on Eating Liberty Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. The last time was a blast. So I I hope intelligently said, of course, I'm going to come on and do it again. It was it was fun. So I'm looking forward to this. Well, I'm glad you're looking forward to it. And so the reason I've invited you on is it's getting to that point. Yes, dear listener, it's coming. Christmas time confections is coming up. Now, before we get into that, and I don't want listeners going to say, oh my gosh, we're going to go into nougat and friandies and mignardies and pettifors. No, 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 no. We can. But the whole purpose of this show is to make things doable. There's no point in making it so hard you can't do it. I don't want that frustration. I know what that's like. So we're going to make this doable because it's hard enough as it is. Before we get into that, Braden, just give us a quick reminder of your background. Certainly. By trade, I'm a pastry chef. I specialize more in patisserie and chocolate, although I do have bread baking experience. For the last 12 years, I've worked for an ingredient company where I did specialize in patisserie and chocolate and showing new concepts for the market to our customers. So most people, if you've eaten at a quick service restaurant, a convenience store, a grocery store, a club store, or even a local bakery on the corner, something that myself or now my team developed is probably on the menu there. And what I do now is I manage a series of test kitchens throughout the U.S. for the ingredient company that I work for, where the teams are creating the really the foods of the future, what you'll be eating tomorrow, we're working on today. Can I assume that excludes bugs and insects? Good question. A few years ago at one of our events, we did serve crickets. And that is a trend that we were tracking, although it's a trend that in many ways I would say has fallen off. It's still there, and I feel that it is still valid for the right segment of the market. It's not, though, a trend that we saw make the jump from, let's say, fine dining or your more adventurous chocolate shops to the mainstream. Not yet, at least. Well, that's a 
politically loaded question aimed directly at the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and the big plans for mealworms and all of the forms of insects to replace four-legged critters, but <clears throat> that's not this show and probably not your area specialty. <laughs> now, I've just some other idea, and I don't, it just occurred to me, and that what's fascinating to me to think about is both the the thrill of adventure in innovation of products that don't currently exist or from ingredients that do. And maybe you're inventing ingredients, which is a whole other like, oh, my gosh, I can't even conceive of that. But that sounds fun. But then there's something that's maybe kind of niche information, but interesting to me is the economics of all of that and how this is absurd. Let's say it takes you an entire year to perfect some product that not only tastes good, but manages to last in a packet on a shelf for some reasonable amount of time. I don't know what that is. Let's say two weeks. A year of research sounds expensive. And so how do you, this? and I don't want you to answer, I just want to lay the table, set, uh, set the table. Boy, that was terrible. Um, for a possibility that if you spend a year of research on a thing, that's a fair amount of cash spent on a product that you got to charge, you know, two ninety five for. It's got to be some, so I'm just interested in the economics of how that all works out. That's for another time. For today, let's get into, so confections. I realize that this isn't your exact particular wheelhouse. We're going to get the chocolates, which is your wheelhouse. Um, one of the things I told you I wanted to talk about was fudge. Mm -hmm. um, my dad made peanut butter fudge when we were kids every holiday season and we made giant baskets to give to everybody it was a lot of fun then one christmas it didn't work and what that what what it means what it meant then and what it generally means when fudge doesn't work instead of being that unctuous melty very thick yet smooth confection that makes your eyes roll back in your head you just go you kind of like homer and drool I can't do the sound, it gets grainy. It still holds a texture, but it doesn't have that expected fabulousness, which is one of the challenges of fudge. So I, I know what can go wrong, and I'm a bit of a snob and more than a few things in food. <laughs> so I want to get the sugar, and I want to get the thermometer, I want to cook it just right, and, and fudge can be... Fickle in lots of ways. You can, you can miss on the temperature. Something can happen in the paddling in the bowl. Then I see that the marshmallow whip folks say, hey, here's a no-cook fudge recipe. I'm like, nah. I bristle at that. Except one thing I'm pretty sure that is the case for the marshmallow whip folks is they've got a kitchen like yours. And they spent mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of time figuring out how to share a recipe and procedure with the customers so every time they do it, it's going to work. Mm -hmm. So now I'm torn. I have a show where I want people to succeed and make the thing, even if it means cheating up, but also to make it the right way. But there's something about my little fussiness in confections. That I, I, <laughs> it's my own personal failing. I admit it. I can't allow in my house. I, I can't bridge that gap. So let's talk first some of the ways to succeed with classic fudge. And then how, how can we cheat up? 
There's a lot there. Yes. There's a lot there. It's interesting. I was just speaking with a cookbook author about taking traditional recipes and consolidating the time because they had published an Instapot cookbook. Uh. And where we came away from it was, if you truly don't have the time, why deny yourself the food? Let's say it's even 90%, 95% of what it could be. I don't want to use the word should. We want to make sure we say what it could be. Go for it. Take that little step. So I'll lead with that because, spoiler alert, in addition to traditional fudge, I grew up with the marshmallow fluff version. <laughs> Every Christmas, my folks make probably about 30 Christmas cookies, all from scratch. 30 varieties. 30 varieties. They wow. change up the recipes. They have about a dozen stable recipes, and then the rest rotate every year. And one of those dozen is always the marshmallow fluff fudge. And it definitely, I have a soft spot for it. Let's though say traditional fudge. There's really, for me at least, two areas that you want to watch. And this is with almost all confection or really pastry in general or bakery. Time and temperature. You want to make sure not only are you cooking the sugars, as you alluded to properly, to the correct temperatures, there's a cooling stage there. You want to make sure you're giving that sugar the time to cool to the right temperature as well before you start agitating it. We all, I think, growing up went to those fudge shops where they would work the fudge on the marble. Some of them, I remember, had songs. It's a lot of fun. You make a whole process out of it. I grew up outside of Baltimore. I don't remember the name of the shop. In the Inner Harbor, there was a shop, though, in one of the pavilions where that's what they did. Whenever they would work the fudge once it was cooled enough, they would sing a song. They'd have some crowd interaction. Of course, I always wanted to go. It was fun, and you get some fudge at the end. So you want to make sure you give it the time to cool to the right temperature. Then you want to make sure you're agitating it, and you're agitating it consistently until you get to the correct stage of crystallization. The graininess most of the time is going to come from some type of improper agitation. You're just not uh, agitating it when it's at the right temperature, or you're not agitating it long enough, too long. It is, as you said, even, it's, it's one of those confections where it could go right 99 times out of 100, and then you turn your back for two minutes and that 100th time, it, it just doesn't quite work. And yeah. even as professionals, we have that happen. Sometimes, you know, we put something in the oven and we think, oh, we did it the same way we've done it the other 1,000 times. We pull it out and it's just not right. And we go, okay, I guess we'll just do it again. <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I was five or six or seven years old at the time. So when that, when my dad's didn't work and as a kid, what do I care? It's sugar and peanut butter. Mm -hmm. What's not to love about this? Yeah. Uh, it wasn't what he wanted and that's fine. And I've done it here at home. We've been the last couple of years and it's just, man, it's a, it's a, it's a real frustration. And, and there's, there's just so many different ways that it can go wrong, and and I don't and and so this isn't the sleuthing portion of the show, and that's that's another, that's something else. So 
it's possible to do following some pretty rigid guidelines. And there are some really good cookbooks either for mm -hmm. written for the home cook version audience or written for on the professional level and the professional level ones, they still work, but there is a different vocabulary and they can, if you're a home cook buying these four professional cookbooks, the the language and terminology can can seem very intimidating. What are they saying? I don't know what this means. I of course I can't do this. So, um, stick if 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 you don't buy them if you can't read them. It just makes sense. Stick to the home ones because they're going to work. And you know I I don't know who does them, but anyway. Um, so let's go. I can hop in there for a yes, moment actually. Please. So there's there's an instructor at the CIA, the friendly one where they teach cooking, not the other one, Culinary Institute of America. His name's Peter Grueling. Everyone in the industry has his chocolate and confections book. It, it's literally- it's right over the, there. I've got it. Right. <laughs> he, he made a few years ago one for home mm. confectioners. So you can get a lot of the same information written in a slightly different way. So I always point people in that direction. It's a very good book to start with. And I think there's a lot of value in it. And then okay. if you try it and you like it, graduate to some of those professional books. And what I tell people is also start reading the front of the book before you just jump into the recipes. Because most of those books, they have an entire section on ingredients, tools, everything you need for the vocabulary is kind of laid out there. And you can learn that and then take it and apply it to the recipes. Well, and I'm going to ask, and in addition to the introduction to terminology and equipment, there's also generally a really good education on procedure. And this is not mm -hmm. jumping in. So as a confection fudge kind of, and this is not completely accurate, but it's kind of like, Viennoisois, the Danish and the croissant in the pastry world. Um, it's 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 a whole other level of thing. And you might be perfectly fine making biscuits and muffins and making cakes, but taking very little of that skill translates into making a laminated dough. It's just a completely different animal, and it has its own set of rules, and you have to know what those rules are. You can dive into making croissants and you might get lucky. The chances are probably you won't because croissant dough is is not particularly forgiving. It wants to be handled and managed in a very particular way. And if you don't do that, you won't know it until you bake it. You say, what is this atrocity? Well, it's, it's a learned skill. So at the beginning of the book, there should be some really good in, uh, explanations about what the procedures are, what you need to be doing, what you should be looking for. Now, the doing and seeing part, no no book can give you. That's just you having to do it. But getting that knowledge in your brain does give you at least some information about what to expect along the journey. I'll Let's say a quick, quick sidebar. Again, anyone who's listening is saying, oh, I did try croissant or some kind of venoiserie. It, it didn't work. Time and temperature. The dough yes. and the the butter, temperature's got to be similar. Thickness has to be similar. Texture has to be similar. A lot of times across the board in baking and pastry, time, temperature. 
It's either being patient or being quick, knowing when to be one of those and working with the products at the right temperature. If you can focus on those areas in a lot of what we're talking about, you're going to be successful. All right. And that's just that that's practice. Lots and lots and lots of practice. Why did Michael Jordan hit free throw with his eyes closed? Because he practiced about 9 billion free throw shots. So it just takes time, different time, your time. Uh, let's so. We can do we can do the traditional one and and probably get it right and there's there's a very nice reward at the end for getting it right and that still doesn't taste bad if it gets a little grainy. Now let's go to the marshmallow fluff version. Now I don't really know what it is because I've not done it. So walk us through what is the basic procedure for a marshmallow fluff the marshmallow fluff version of fudge and. How do how do how does this succeed? Where's the hiccup? Where's the problem? Those are all very good questions. On that one, I think I've made it once. Really, it's something every Christmas. It's what my mom makes. Uh, again, one of the many recipes. And the one time I tried it, I a long time ago. I do remember it worked, and I don't have any memory of hers not working uh it's again every time because it's it's very simple at least the one that i'm kind of familiar with you're using butter sugar you're generally using uh evaporated milk you're using chocolate i mean most people who are doing this at home are buying chocolate chips and then i call it marshmallow fluff it's the brand i know uh technically marshmallow cream and you're probably adding some vanilla to it is all you're doing and it's mainly about taking the non-aerated ingredients, uh, heating them up, melting all the, them all together, getting it again to the right temperature, and then putting in the the aerated ingredient. The, that's the fluff, the marshmallow cream. Again, because if you think back to how you're going to make fudge traditionally, there's that agitation. What is agitation? It's aeration. When you're working it, on the counter, you're working air in. Every time you take it and you fold it up on itself and you press it down, you're working air in. That's why when you work with something pre-aerated, you're never going to add it and heat it because you're going to destroy that aeration. Interesting practice tip too for people about actual uh, fudge or really that kind of crystalline confection. Fudge and fondant are actually very similar. Fudge has fat added to it and, and inclusions, which fondant doesn't. Otherwise, they're they're mainly a crystalline structure with a supersaturated syrup. So if you're a little nervous about fudge, you can practice making fondant, get the agitation down with a simpler recipe because you're going to have less waste as well. You don't have those other ingredients like peanut butter or chocolate. That's where the fat is coming in. And it can be another way to practice while saving yourself some money because you're not adding all the same ingredients, but you can practice getting the right texture. It's an interesting observation, and I'm chuckling to myself because I years ago, maybe when my daughter was four or five, I promised her that she would have a fondant cake for her 16th birthday. And son of a gun, wouldn't mm -hmm. you know, that's coming up. So it's like, ah. geez. So... <laughs> 
I, I might I'm probably going to actually make marshmallow fondant because I think regular okay. fondant is 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 unbelievably sweet to me. It's I can't. Well, I don't think anybody, maybe two people on the planet actually like fondant. I mean, some people tolerate it and most people just throw it away. I can't eat it because it's, it's, it just hurts my teeth. It's unbelievably mm-hmm. sweet. The sugar is yeah. just too much. But marshmallow fondant at least has some flavor, although it's mm-hmm. still more sugar. Um, yeah. All right. So if the thing we're looking for is predictable success, then the marshmallow flush, I can't say marshmallow fluff, marshmallow fluff, uh, <laughs> uh, fondant, fudge, my goodness, too many words. Then that's a good way to go because one, it's going to taste pretty good. The people who have designed it have designed it to master consistency and predictability and repetition. So mm-hmm. we can be pretty confident that it's going to work. And that's really the thing we want. If we're going to make gifts for somebody, we don't want to make gifts that don't turn out. What's that? Come on. Um, so I, I might just have to, the dogs are barking. I might just have to make a version to, to see and see if I can find some way to appease my own self with with uh-huh. a with a marshmallow fluff, fluff fudge so let's talk a little bit we mentioned marshmallows it's a great segue into making marshmallows which are easier than making fudge mm-hmm. are and so the, here's the really fun thing they can you can do all kinds of add-ins you can make them plain and then cut them and while they're still sticky um, dip them into things so that the edges have this thing. So it's a, it's kind of pretty. You can do all kinds of colors, shapes, textures, crunches. Uh, you can flavor them with all kinds of extracts. Um, with and, and you can actually even make chocolate marshmallows. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, with between vanilla and lemon and peppermint and and the, I mean, the pretty much the sky's the limit as far as extracts goes. What is the we have? So we have cooked sugar again, which I think in if I think in confection land, we're gonna have a hard time getting away from cooked sugar from things, at least what we're gonna talk about today. But yes. that's that's part of what we're doing. Um, so let's what's the process? And there's more than a few recipes for marshmallows. What's a basic good recipe without ratios for making marshmallows? There are a lot of different ways to do it. The one that I like the most because it's the absolute simplest and I use professionally, it's really only a few ingredients. It's tremoline, which is a type of sugar we use professionally. You can, though, use other sugars. If you're talking about your home use, you're using corn syrup is what you're doing. And then you also have your granulated sugar, your water, and gelatin. And gelatin is what's really grabbing the air and holding it in the marshmallow. You can add, at that point, flavors. So vanilla is traditional in pretty much every marshmallow. You can add extracts. For chocolate, you have to adjust the recipe a little bit. So fat, in this case, is generally the enemy of the marshmallow. Too much much or anything that's too acidic could deflate the marshmallow. You can also, in place of water, use fruit puree. That's where you got to be careful. So like, you don't necessarily want to use lemon juice. You're going to use lemon extract. But a fruit with a higher pH 
it would be okay. So I've made like strawberry, raspberry, blackberry, a lot of the berries, those purees, and you can make it yourself, the puree. You just got get the uh, frozen fruit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you a minute. You said a higher pH, and I'm assuming you meaning toward the alkaline side. Are you still in yes. acid, or are you still just higher? Just You're just higher. Low acid versus, right. say, lemon juice, which is high acid. Exactly. Yes. Now, raspberries are a particular problem for the pastry chef in the form of when it adds to gelatin, because raspberries have pectin, and very, very bizarre frustrating, predictable, yet frustrating things happen when you add acid, pectin, and gelatin together. Is that going to be a problem in the marshmallow, particularly with the raspberry? Not so much. No, you're using such small amounts. And again, it's one of those areas where if you try it and you feel like the texture is a little firmer than you like, you back off on the gelatin, just a hint, because all you're doing, all, all the way that I make them is, is I'm cooking a portion of my uh, my trimaline, so, so corn syrup, water, sugar, I'm cooking that. I have some more corn syrup in a bowl with my gelatin. So if you're buying powdered gelatin at the store, you've hydrated it, meaning you've put the gelatin over top of water, it's absorbed the water, and now you have uh, a nice bouncy mass. I'm putting that gelatin and the rest of my corn syrup in a mixing bowl. When my sugar's cooked properly, I pour it over the other sugar and gelatin in the mixing bowl. And then I just start whipping. And you're going to notice very quickly, especially as it cools, that gelatin is going to grab the air and it's going to go from being almost a clear mass to being this white opaque mass. And then you can go ahead, you know, add flavorings at that point, extracts, vanilla, right? You're going to add those. You want to be careful adding those to anything that's too hot because of their flashpoint. So if you were to put those in the bowl the first time, pour the hot sugar over, depending on what extract you decided to use, you're going to be over the flash point. You're going to lose that flav- flavor. So from you're not extract. saying it's going to catch on fire. You're saying the, the volatility of the flavor right. is going to go up in, in, the, in the steam. Precisely. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, don't worry. You won't blow your kitchen up. <laughs> eh, prob- I mean, 99% you won't. Um, my lawyer says to just don't do this and blow your kitchen up. Uh, that, that's what they're telling me. And at that point, it's just about whipping it until you get that nice aerated texture and then you work with it. And you have to work quick because once marshmallow cools, yes. it's a lot harder to work with. A lot of times what I do is when it's ready, I put it right into a piping bag and I, I pipe it out unless you want squares. Then you have to spread it out And you have to cut it once it's, again, cooled enough that you can cut it. And if you are going to do that, whether you're spreading it, piping it, whatever, there's a few things people do. Some people will put it onto a piece of parchment paper that they've greased. Some people will use a silicone mat that they've also greased to make sure. Or they'll put uh, some cornstarch down on a silicone mat. Or you can do a starch box, which is kind of like it sounds cornstarch and you can line a sheet tray with it or you can put it in an actual box and then you you deposit the marshmallow in there that's how when you're buying one at the store they're done they're extruding that in a really long line it's you know cooling in starch if you think about it the ones from the store they have that starchy mm-hmm. powdery uh consistent uh, texture on the outside i should say product on the outside and then they can cut them 
right after they've set and that's really all it is so I mean, marshmallows it's simple it's about cooking sugar gelatin and whipping it real good you know it's, it's devo's favorite confection from what i hear because you get to whip it real good <laughs> yes <clears throat> um i've used egg whites and mm-hmm. i like the i like the finished product uh, and I, I lightly butter a silicone pad and put it on and then butter the edge of the sheet pan and then just sort of cram it onto the uh, one side of the sheet pan so it's as deep as I can possibly get it, let it cool, and then cut them into into shapes and either dust them in cocoa powder just because it's fun um, or dust them in powdered sugar just so they don't stick. I am no fan at all in the baking part of silicone pans. However, it just occurred to me maybe a silicone, who knows, little square, and they make all kinds of shapes. Would you need the butter or do something to a silicone let's say we got little squares do you need to butter the silicone to get it out yeah it's it's a good idea with a marshmallow even though those pans can be great uh, for a lot of different things marshmallows are sticky and if you're putting it inside of a cavity you're probably best to to make sure that you've greased that cavity now the silicone hold heat longer than metal the silicone should cool faster then i guess if you had it on something metal yeah if you had it on something metal again it it really all depends so when we when we're working a lot of times you know our metal pans go directly on uh, a piece of marble which just sucks the heat right right out of them. Uh, that's what our countertops are at work mainly. You know, we have we have a lot of marble countertops. Uh, when we're working with the silicone, generally they actually go straight into a freezer. So again, vastly different. Uh, but you know, yeah. if we're talking marshmallow, um, the the silicone won't cool the marshmallow as quickly, right? Does that make sense? Because it's not going to take the heat yeah. out. The, like the metal pan yes. is going to want the heat from the marshmallow faster. But now the metal pan is holding that heat. Um, I've never done a study to see which one would cool faster with, let's say, marshmallow in it. Could be interesting, <laughs> something to go. Well, and I don't, try. I don't have them. I don't use them, so yeah. I don't know what the. Tra- I know, I, I know what the transfer of heat is through metal because it's a very good conductor. I don't know anything about the transfer of heat in silicone. So it just was. It seemed an interesting thought that if you're using a silicone mold, you may have to increase your time to cool for the product by some factor of two or three. I don't know, but I'm just wondering if the if the person is like, ah, this is a really good idea. How much longer do you have to wait so you can try to get it out before? <laughs> uh, I can I can imagine the mess being immense and I can imagine the frustration being at least equal. Uh, yeah. So just thinking about, you know, that possibility. And if you are going to try it too, a lot of times with molds, what we do is we, we starch them depending on what's going in them. So you can even take cornstarch and powdered sugar, mix them together and then put them through a fine sieve and just dust the mold as well. Cause that's going to really help right. with release, you know, in addition to just a little bit of some type of, uh, you know, fat, whether it be pan spray, butter, right. whatever it is that you want to use. Hmm. Yeah. And perhaps there's some degree of static electricity in the silicone holding the, the dusting powder on just enough. That's a good idea. 
I may have to try that too. Wow, what a Christmas this is going to be. Two experiments and one thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we we, we talked about cooking sugar. And yeah, <laughs> me too. So do the kids. Um, so, and this is something we talked about before, uh, is, is the sort of the, the impressive ways you can just take two ingredients and, and a concept, water, sugar, and heat, time as well, uh, and then do lots of different things. One of the very th interesting things to do with that is to make something so you can take, uh, go from peanut brittle to uh, a version of Aunt Sally's Nolan's Pralines, which, oh my God, they are so good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll go off keto for those things. Uh, and then also we take another step or two and we make seafoam. So that's kind of fun. And one of the things that's very interesting with with hot sugar, and I'm, I, I, this, is, this is a little bit of chemistry. So if you're boiling your sugar and you add baking soda to that, a very unexpected thing happens if you if you aren't ready for it, and that is you get foam, you get lots mm -hmm. of air, and then immediate chemical aeration in your product. You're like, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. what happened? No, no, that's that's a good thing. We want yeah. that. So, uh, peanut butter was a big thing for my stepfather. I don't know even know if I think people still make it. I don't know if anybody even eats it anymore. Do you guys make peanut butter? How do you make peanut butter? Yeah, I used to make peanut brittle a fair amount. Uh, you know, it's not something, if we're talking about work, it's not something people are banging down our door for because it's it's relatively simple. Again, it's really just about cooking the sugar to the right temperature and then adding in any other ingredients that shouldn't be cooked. So generally in brittle, you're adding in butter that's going to shorten the bite of the brittle and then you're going to add in the baking soda, which like you said, you add that in and it's like that volcano you used to do when you were in elementary school. And what that's doing is it is, it's aerating it. And that's what gives brittle that color as well, because the baking soda actually uh, helps with a Maillard reaction in the, in the brittle. And it gives it that rest of that texture and color that you're looking for. And then it's about going ahead and adding your inclusions and spreading it out. Some people will also pull their brittle, uh, just like you might pull sugar. And a lot of times those people will not add the baking soda. It's just a more labor intensive process. And you have to be very careful, right? The sugar cools. You can't pull it past a certain point. So you need to really know what you're doing if you're going to go for that style of brittle. Uh, if somebody asks me, I always say, no, follow a good recipe, use baking soda, Use the inclusions you like, and you should have success every time as long as you have a good thermometer. That's a key to a lot of this. Have a good thermometer, a probe thermometer that you trust. If, and I will say again, disclaimer, my lawyer has said, do not try this at home. What we will do sometimes, and it's more of to freak out people who have just started in the industry, is... Somewhere hidden, you get a bowl of ice water, a lot of ice, little water, deep enough to put your hand in. You insulate your hand for a minute in the ice water, and then you dip <laughs> your hand in the hot sugar, and then you put your hand immediately back in the ice water, and you can tell how much the sugar is cooked. You know, is it softball? Is it hardball? Where's the sugar? By 
how the sugar solidifies in the water. Right. And if you do it, especially around a kid who doesn't know you're about to do it, the reactions are fantastic. Again, my lawyers have said, do not try this at home. Yeah. Reach out to me. I'll, I'll send you a video of what it looks like. That's actually before I had a thermometer. How I learned to tell those different stages because I wanted to know what does this mean. Softball. Well, I want to know what is mm-hmm. what is. But okay, yeah, don't yeah, don't don't do that. It's a <laughs> that's a good yeah. hazing trick. Um, I want to get to your wheelhouse and chocolate, but before I get to that, I want to ask what I think are two really good points. So one, avoid grandma's glass thermometer with a little mercury read inside. Yeah. And what is, so for brittle, and then this is some cookbook somewhere recommended using probably a Southern cookbook, cast iron to Mm. make brittle. Now I know that cast iron is frowned upon for things like tomatoes and spinach and other high acid things. I don't, actually I'm sort of surprised. I don't know. I think sugar is relatively neutral. Um, is cast iron a suitable choice? So this means clean cast iron, not the stuff you've been using for 30 years. And if not, and it's heavy and it's, it burns, is there a better preference pot that people can afford? Copper is not going to be an affordable product and it's, yeah. it's only limited to candy. So don't go yeah. buy copper. What should people, what pot should people be using for making making these for cooking sugar, what should they be using? What's a good pot that they can also use in July to make you know potato salad? I use stainless steel for everything. Sometimes, if you need to save a little bit, it's a stainless steel core with aluminum. Because when you're talking about cooking sugar, really the big thing you want is uh, an even distribution of the heat. A lot of times today, you're also seeing people switching to induction cooking. You know, right. I just went out and got a new stove, and I think at least 50% of the options had at least one induction burner. So if people ask me, I always say, you know, it, it's a good idea to make sure whatever you buy can can go on induction. So let's say if that's the way the industry continues, you don't have to buy new cookware. And st- so stainless steel is good for that. Everything I have, at least personally at home, I'll, I'll buzz market. They're just all clad pans. You know, they're not the most expensive version of all clad. They're their standard kind of mid-level pans for work. We buy no name, off-brand, you know, stainless steel induction pans, and they work great. You know, avoid the the one that's on special for ten dollars on the end cap at the local store. You know, you want something heavy enough that it's not going to burn the bottom. Right. Right. A thin pan is not going to do a good job. And you want something with a good core that's going to hold the heat and move it evenly and consistently throughout the pan. If you have that, who cares what name it says on the pan? It, It should work just fine. And make sure, final point, it's large enough for the volume you want to cook. Right. Make sure it's wide enough. And make sure it's tall enough if you're going to make a brittle or a caramel or anything where you're going to add an ingredient that might cause some bubbling. Make sure you have extra height on your pan so that it doesn't yeah. come up over the sides. The uh, you know, you don't want to hurt yourself. For caramel. Or, oh, my gosh. Yeah, make yeah. a mess. <laughs> yeah, pour some cold cream into 238 degree sugar and 
Get the mop. Get yeah, out of the yeah, way. Yeah, don't do that. Heat the cream first, please. Heat heat the cream first. Uh, you're still going to get a boil, but it's going to it's going to at least mitigate that a little bit. Exactly. Um, all right, let's talk chocolate and particularly truffles. Now, I know that there are going to be people who want to make white chocolate truffles, and that is an entirely different ball game uh, because it, white chocolate isn't chocolate. What do you mean it's not chocolate? It's not chocolate. Um, one of the, now, I, I am no fan whatsoever of those mall stores, and some of them are named after naked ladies on horses. Uh, I actually think they went out of business. Uh, I don't like those truffles. I can't stand those truffles. I don't like the fact that there's this gigantic shell that is a cheat. I understand the need for the cheat. I don't care for it. And the filling is generally really, really bad. So let's make a really, really good truffle. And then I think there's a, a strange thing that doesn't exactly make sense, but it kind of does. That, and this is some French guy translated into American, I forgot who it was, that a good truffle base must sit at least 24 hours for a proper redistribution of all the stuff. Now, I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but let's get to... If we're going to make truffles, how much chocolate, how much butter, how much cream? And then if we're going to do an add-in, say we want to add cognac or framboise, how do we do that? Well, there's a lot of different ways, and I think everyone will give you a different opinion. <laughs> I'm sure hit that's on true. The having it sit, I'll hit that first. They're saying 24 hours. A lot of people, that's always been historically the guideline. Let it sit for 24 hours. It's so that it will crystallize so that you can either enrobe it or roll it after you've made the ganache. At the end of the day, your goal is crystallization. So once it's properly crystallized and you can handle it for whatever method you're using to finish the truffle, you're okay, right? You're, you're good to go. All right. Let me so interrupt truffle, you for one second. What is doing the crystallization? It's the fat in the chocolate. So it's the cocoa butter. So that's why you can make a truffle out of white milk or dark chocolate. They all have cocoa butter in them. And that cocoa butter is what's crystallizing. And that's a whole other, at least probably 47 minutes going into cocoa butter as a polymorphic fat and the different ways that it can crystallize. If you're making ganache, you don't really have to worry about that. There are is a type of ganache that most people know that's using heavy cream, oftentimes butter, oftentimes uh, corn syrup or professionally glucose or tremoline. And then there's actually one that only uses butter. I always tell people at home, make the ganache based off heavy cream because you can make it with regular chopped up chocolate as long as it's been handled properly. And you're going to get a good result every time. The ganache that uses butter as the liquefier, because you have two parts. You have the chocolate and then you have the liquefier. That's mainly what's in a ganache. The one that uses all butter as your liquefier, you use tempered chocolate. So that's another beast. If you're making gifts for the holidays, you want them to work. So stick with chocolate, heavy cream, butter, and then flavorings and depending on what texture you want you can start adding some sugars in there the way that i always think about it uh i have dark chocolates in one category milk chocolate white chocolate are in a different category for dark chocolate your 
base where you always start with a ganache formulation is two parts chocolate, one part liquefier. And that's your heavy cream. By weight or volume? uh, By weight. So everything I do is by weight at home, professional, everything. That's really the first thing. Back up all the way to the beginning. (laughs) Buy a scale. Okay, let's get back to what we were saying. You have your scale, let's say, and I'm going to do everything in metric because that's just how we work professionally. It's Yeah, everything is metric. So convert it, Google, it's great for converting. If you have, you know, a kilo, 1,000 grams of chocolate, 500 grams of cream. That's your base. And then depending on what flavors you want and what you want to do, you can adjust. Let's say you want to add some cognac. Cognac is also a liquefier. Let's say you want to add 50 grams of cognac. Well, now I have 1,000 grams of chocolate, 50 grams of cognac, 450 grams of heavy cream because cream and cognac are liquefiers. So I'm trying to even out my amounts in my ratio. If I just started adding cognac on top, I might not be able to roll or pipe my ganache once it's ready. And then it's going to be too fluid. I'm not going to have a good result. Now you're saying, hey, heavy cream has fat in it. I'll say, yes, you're correct. That's where the butter comes in. You could add, if you like a really rich ganache and you're going for that texture, you could add butter and heavy cream. Almost always, though, when somebody takes out cream and adds another liquefier, they add butter, and it's to add back the fat. That's why you're doing that. You're adding back the fat. The butter in the U.S. is roughly 80% fat, and then there's some water and some solids in there. You don't really have to worry about the water you're really worrying about the fat. So again, let's say you've taken and added 50 grams of cognac. You took out 50 grams of cream. I I would start in that case adding about 50 grams of butter. If I'm just writing down my formula, right? I'm just doing it all off the top of my head. I'm writing it down and then I'm going to go test it and see what my results are. That's kind of what my formula on paper would look like. Now, we talked about Earlier, I said something about brittle, how you can shorten the bite of it, and that's why you add butter to it. Ganache, you can shorten the bite of it with sugars. And people at home, you use corn syrup. Professionally, people use glucose or trimaline. So you're going to get, if you want to, corn syrup. There are people who use agave. There are people who use honey. You have to understand the differences there, that you're going to get a color variation, you're going to get a texture variation, uh, and you're going to get a flavor variation. If you're adding one of those types of products, again, very rough, ballpark, whatever the weight of your cream is, 25% of that, I'm sorry, 20% of that weight would be your sugar product, your corn syrup in this case. So pretty much for every 100 grams of cream, 20 grams of corn syrup. The corn syrup gets heated with the cream that's poured over the chocolate. You let it sit for a minute or two, then you emulsify it, then you let that cool, then you add the butter and any other flavorings that would be, again, where you'd worry about the uh, flavor flashing off from heat. So that would be your cognac or your other alcohol, an extract. You'd add all of that when you add the butter. Most people, if they've made a ganache, they know from a cookbook, Start in the middle with a whisk and stir in big circular motions, you know, from the inside to the outside. If you got an immersion blender, 
even faster way to do it is make the ganache in a container that is tall, but that has a smaller circumference. Put the chocolate in there, pour the hot ingredients over there, and then just stick the immersion blender right in there when you're ready. Turn it on. It's going to emulsify it straight off for you. Then once it's cool, you put the butter in, you put any other flavors in, put the immersion blender back in. It's going to emulsify pretty much straight off for you. What that's also going to do is it's going to give you a more consistent structure, which can increase the shelf life of your ganache and give you a creamier mouthfeel because you have a smaller uh, air structure in that ganache. Now, quick tip. If you're using the immersion blender, also have a, a container of equal size of hot water, about halfway full. After you knock all the extra ganache off into your container, stick the immersion blender in the hot water, press the start button, it'll clean it. So then all you have to do is really just sanitize it in the sink and you're good to go. And you're not trying to scrape ganache around a sharp blade on an immersion blender. Good tip. I want to ask you... You said for, for butter is going to be, in your formula, 5% of the weight of the cream. Does that include the weight of the cream and the flavoring? Or is it just because we had 450 grams of cream, we had 50 grams of cognac. Are we adding 20, 20% of 450 or 20% of 500? No, I'm so if we're talking butter, I'm really only worrying mainly about how much fat I took out. So I'm worried about like okay. in this instance, let's say 50 grams. And then if I'm adding corn syrup, that's based off my total liquefier. So oh, I'm basing the sugar. That, I'm, I got the I got that part wrong. Yeah. So yeah, that I'm basing it off of my total liquefier. And there are people again, that's just a rough ballpark. I have seen award winning pastry chefs. Uh, and their recipes have 30, 40, 50% for some ganaches. It's just all about what kind of texture they're going for and what the final product is going to be. You would right. never put that much in something you want to make into a truffle because by definition, a truffle that we're thinking of, you're probably after the ganache is made, letting it sit overnight, then you're scooping it out, you're rolling it. And then you're either rolling it in tempered chocolate or you're rolling it directly in cocoa powder, perhaps, or some chopped up nuts, some kind of coating. Yeah, something. But it's got that hand-rolled, yeah. traditional, can't. imperfect round, which is right. what I think of when I think of a truffle. Yeah, you can't put too much sugar or too much liquefier in that kind of product because when you go can't to roll it. it, you can't work with it, right? That's why you see these mass-produced ones in a chocolate shell. Right. Because they're making a thinner, more liquid ganache that can be deposited. It's deposited into those shells, then it's capped with tempered chocolate. And and that's how they're getting to that point. It's probably, I don't know, I'm just guessing because I know how commercial things go. It's probably more sugar than butter or cream. I just don't, yeah. It's a good point. I just still don't like them. But, all right. We covered some of the the chocolate and cocoa butter stuff in the first episode. And I'm going to put a link to, I don't even know what the number was. Uh, I'll put a link to that episode on today's show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 213. Um, so I'm looking at the clock. We got a few minutes. Do you still have a few minutes to hang out? Sure. So I'm going, to, I'm going to get into the uh, the chef's table portion, which is for the Patreon. Um, but we're going to pretend to say goodbye here. Thank you for 
making time for me this morning. I know that I, I know you're busy, but I appreciate that. No, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. I hope folks have learned something. And if they have any questions, uh, I'm totally cool. I'd love people to uh, reach out to me and I'm happy to answer your questions and give a hand and just help make what you're making in the kitchen that much better. How should they reach you? Twitter or email? Uh, best way to reach me is to email uh, the email address for the podcast that I do, which is epicureanunicorn at parados, P-U-R-A-T-O-S dot com. That gets directly to me. You email that. I'll answer your question. And it's the best way. Yeah. If you okay. look for me, you'll find me on Twitter. But I have it set up that if you DM me, I'll get a message that you DM'd me. I'm not actively engaging with folks. It's it's not my speed. <laughs> I'll put a link to that email address also on the show notes page. Very good. No, well, thank you perfect. for Perfect. No, you're welcome. All right, folks. That's going to do it. I will put a link to the Peter Grueling home version book on the show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 213. Uh, that is available from Amazon. And also a link for a digital thermometer from Amazon, which is pretty good. I've worked with one similar to that. Um, they're, the price range is about even. They're not horribly expensive, but they do work. And, and yeah, don't, don't use grandmas. I did ask Braden a follow-up question about vegan replacements for gelatin. He said there are at least two and wrote this, quote, What I learned is that Druid's Grove Gelatin is generally a one-to-one -one replacement for gelatin and it should be hydrated and mixed into the recipe with very high shear to avoid lumps. A small fruit processor works well. It goes, pardon me, it does contain carrageenan, which some people do look to avoid in their diet. You can also make a different style marshmallow using aquafaba, which can be interesting because it needs to be dried. It will not remain stable or keep long term without dehydrating, end quote. Now, we did include Braden's uh, email address on the show notes page. If that's something that you're interested in trying, he can give you more direction because I cannot. <laughs> I don't even, I'm not even sure I understand what I read. I want to thank you for listening and for being here. I appreciate that very much. Uh, I also want to thank uh, my Patreon supporters for their continued, well, pardon the pun, patronage. Uh, you can join them and get the chef's table portion for Braden's episode and all of the other ones by joining the membership subscription of Patreon at culinarylibertarian.com slash support. And for you who know people who make cookies and fudge and brittle and marshmallows, share this episode on your social media feeds just in time to maybe get a tin of your own goodies. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon.